we're talking, each one of these sermons has gathered to or gathered for. Today, we're talking about gathered to Jesus. And lots of the contributions that we've had already have led up to this, which is very encouraging. I'm going to be be focusing around a particular passage, um, which we'll get to in just a second. There are some passages in the Bible which are so poetic and so full of truth that we can almost let them wash over us and we can enjoy the poetry and the rhythm of the words and only just skim the depths. The first chapter of John is one of them. Romans 8 is another. The one I'm going to be looking at today from Hebrews chapter 12 is another one. So what I wanted to do is actually to dig into this and then see what we can learn. So, without further ado, we're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg for no further messages to be spoken to them. They could not endure the, the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it should be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festival gathering, to the church of the firstborn who is enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we're going to dig into this, but let's just think about the, the context of this, the broader context. There are two themes that run through the book of Hebrews. We don't know who the author of the book of Hebrews was. But, but it was written to a group of people who had the historic Jewish faith from the Old Testament, uh, but who had become Christians and were uh, undergoing persecution. And there are two major themes, and the whole book is a, it's almost a single argument that runs through. The first theme is connecting Jesus and the faith that we have now to all of the things that went before in the Old Testament, and we'll see that again and again go through this passage. The second theme is they were undergoing persecution and it's it's an encouragement to draw close to Jesus and to stand firm as they they, they move with him. So those are the two themes, those are the things to, to keep in mind. And this is just a small section that comes through, a very long, a long section that goes from, well, way through the middle of the book to the last half of the book but it's encouraging the people, the Hebrews, to to draw near to God and to to embrace with him. Okay, so what are we going to do? We're going to look at this passage, which has two contrasting encounters with the glory of God. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, or even looking forward to after the second coming. It contains lots of references the Old Testament that they would be familiar with and it would spark something off. 
whereas for us it can be a little bit less familiar. So, you know, if I immediately said to you, we are not amused, you would immediately think of Queen Victoria, right? Because that's part of our cultural background. Sorry for all those people who are not British at that point. And if I said, we will fight them on the beaches, you would immediately think of Winston Churchill. The writer here is giving little verbal clues that make you think of something bigger. And so I'm going to try to look at those and to try to explain what those are. What we're going to, so the first step is we're going to go through the passage um, in, in chunks, and then I want to see how that's going to apply to us in our life today. That's where we go. So the first section, which I'm going to pass through quite quickly, uh, this is verses 18 to 21. So this was the bit about you have not come, blah blah blah. This is referring to when when the, the Moses got the law on Mount Sinai. It starts in Exodus chapter 19. It's a very long passage. It continues all the way through to Exodus 32. It's inspired, there's narrative bits interspersed with, with parts of the law. But the basic idea there is the glory of God in all of his majesty came down on the mountain. And it was so terrifying and so glorious that everybody was a bit scared. Only Moses was allowed to go up the mountain and to, to, be, uh, to go with God face to face. All the people were told, consecrate yourself, uh, make yourself holy. The power and the glory of God are coming right now, or over the next few days. And, and as Moses went up, and it was, it was so, God is so holy that they were told they should not go near the mountain. This is what this business about, even if a, a beast goes close to the mountain, it should be stoned. Moses was there for a very long time. And they were observing all of this. It was all a bit scary. But as they were waiting, their kind of faith that God was going to do something with them started to ebb and started to fall away and they got a little bit Moses has gone we don't know what's happened to him um, we need to do something um, for ourselves so they petitioned Aaron to, to make a golden calf which they all worship um, and the whole thing goes a little bit pear-shaped even though they're told not to do that they, they're, they're, they're impatient and they the key thing there that I want to draw out is they were observers and not participants of the encounter with God. So let's move on to happier things. So then the second thing is a, a picture of heaven. A picture of the throne room in heaven of worship of Jesus. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. So probably when these Hebrews said, heard the first phrase, you've come to Mount Zion, they immediately think of the temple in Jerusalem. Mount Zion was the name of the temple, uh, the place where the temple was in Jerusalem. 
actually, according to my good friend Wikipedia, the actual location that was referred to as Mount Zion has shifted three times. Um, but we won't go there, but the, the second one of those was the, the location of the temple that was the centre of all worship for their, for their people, for their culture. So you come to Mount Zion, it's immediately saying, come to worship Jesus, worship the living God. The city of the living God, they would also be thinking of, of Jerusalem. And the writer twists it here and says, but it's the heavenly Jerusalem. They're not just thinking about a physical temple and a physical place. We're actually translating that from the Old Testament way of thinking to the New Testament way of this is heaven. This is the, the, the place uh, where we worship God forever and ever. And uh, in Revelation, we, we hear of, Mount, of heaven being referred to as Mount Zion. So Revelation 14.1 Behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So this is not looking back to the Old Testament, but it's looking forward to, to heaven. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. There are lots and lots, in fact, innumerable um, and those of you with any mathematical knowledge will know that that means that's a very, very big number. Innumerable angels and they're celebrating. There is joy and celebration from the angels in heaven. If you look through the Old Testament, um, I think, well, when, I, when I did my little search, and many the theologians can correct me, but apart from Joseph's Jacob's dream, so Jacob's dream of the angels going up and down the ladder to heaven. In the Old Testament, angels only seem to come in ones and twos. It's only when we get to the New Testament we see innumerable angels. We see them. Um, uh, we see them in Luke chapter two, verse thirteen. Something we're very, very familiar with from Christmas, when the shepherds are on the on the hillside. One of the angels comes to them, and then suddenly the party that's in heaven bursts out. And, and there's angels singing, um, innumerable angels singing glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. It's almost like there's a thin place between heaven and earth. And there's such celebration in heaven that, they, that the angels just burst through. Uh, and then and they, the shepherds see that. That celebration is going on forever, ever past and ever future the angels in heaven, innumerable angels in festal gathering well, other translations have it slightly better in joyful assembly what, however you want to put it they're celebrating now the next phrase is one when I look this up it's something that the theologians find a difficult phrase so we're gonna, I'll try to unpick a little bit of that but basically, it's saying that not only are there innumerable angels, there are also the people of God, the church of God. And it says the church of the firstborn. And what on earth does that mean? The theologians seem to have no common opinion, so I'm going to give you mine. And if it's wrong, that's fine. In the Old Testament, 
the, the firstborn was very special. So for all of the, the when they had livestock and animals, the firstborn was supposed to be sacred to God. It was also applied to their people, to their, to their, their physical children. We also see that with the Egyptians and the plague of the firstborn. And, and in, in Numbers 3 and 13 it says, The firstborn are mine. I am the Lord. Remember when, when Hannah was, was praying for a child and, um, and she, she gave birth to Samuel. He, she gave him and he, went, he lived in the temple from a very young age. And so there is a something, if you have older brothers and sisters, not, we're not talking about you're excluded, but there is something in the Old Testament about the dedication of the firstborn. Colossians 1.18, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So this is carried through. And then in, in 1 John 3.2, we shall be like him. So this is nature of being firstborn, we will inherit through Jesus. Part of our inheritance is Jesus. We are the church of the firstborn. Okay, that's my take on what this is. This is there's something about quality in the Old Testament of being devoted to God and being special to God is part of our inheritance just as we, we take that from Jesus. Finally, is church the firstborn? They're enrolled in heaven. When Jesus sent out the disciples to, to heal the sick and cast out demons, um, they came back really, really excited about what God was doing. Said, don't be excited that the demons flee from you. Be excited that your names are written in heaven. And that is our focus, that our names are written in heaven. So when we, we come in the throne room of heaven, we had the, uh, the innumerable angels. We have the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The, the Hebrews will be really familiar with the idea of God as judge. It's a theme that comes through again and again through the Old Testament. Actually, the idea of being perfected would be something that was a bit more alien to the, the law that which we saw coming from Mount Sinai, the first showed how much we fall short of God's standards. So earlier on in Hebrews, the writer emphasised this point that the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced uh, through which we draw near to God. We're not drawing near to God on the basis of the law, but on the basis of the hope that we have in Jesus. There's this juxtaposition between God as judge and yet us through Jesus him taking our sin and our guilt being made perfect and the church perfected in heaven and best bit of all you have come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel Jesus is central to all that we do he is central in heaven all of the worship gathered around. 
And then we come to the, so that's the first part. We come to Jesus. And then there's this slightly strange phrase at the end. Sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, first of all, what does this mean? Again, this is a bit of a complicated thing. Well, at the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many to the forgiveness of sin. The message of the blood of Jesus is forgiveness and right standing with God. If we read in Genesis 4.10, after Abel is murdered by his brother Cain, his blood on the ground sends up a message to God. It says his blood speaks, and it cries for vengeance uh, for, for his killing and, and for, uh, for, for punishment. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We don't, we're not focused on guilt or on sin, but rather on forgiveness that's my quick whistle-stop tour through this passage, through all of the things that we, that we see there and the references, and I hope that that will help us as we come. So let's think about the applications for today. At, at Mount Sinai, uh, the people of Israel were, were, were told to consecrate themselves um, but they did not, in the end, have a direct encounter with God. It's actually vitally important that we invest in our own relationship with God, rather than simply observing others or just doing um, things, sort of spiritual disciplines or religious activities. And without without that relationship, we can end up in idolatry basically what happened there. So we don't tend to, when we slip away from God, we don't tend to make golden cards these days because that's kind of not in our culture. But there are parts of our culture that we can slip into. The reason why they wanted a golden card was because they saw the other nations around them with, with physical idols to worship and they wanted to be like the world around them. We can allow parts of the, the, the culture of the world around us into the church, and that can lead us away from God. Two that I want to particularly focus on, uh, because it's again all to do with this observing rather than participating, are detachment. We can we can seek to observe. I know that a few years ago, maybe it's still going on. I've, I've no idea. When, when we sort of got a church Twitter account, that there was a whole group of people in our worship tweeting about what was going on and observing and commenting on it rather than actually participating in the worship. And that's so sad because people are missing out. But what happens if we do that? If we step back and we observe and we evaluate, what we do is we can slip into cynicism and I know that. I used to do that a long, long time ago. I, I got into that trap. Praise God, I got out of the trap. Okay. But the, the world around us likes to observe and comment on things, whether that is sports commentators 
whether it's political commentators, whether it's book reviews, whatever it is, the world likes to observe and to critique what's going on rather than to do and to perform themselves. And when that slips into the church, we can, oh, I didn't like that, oh, the songs today, they weren't my favourite songs, or, oh, I, that sermon, I don't think he did this right, that right, or the other right. Well, I can tell you I'm probably doing anything right. But, but, but what we need to do is we need to focus on Jesus. We need, we need Jesus to be our focus. And we're all going to make things, make, do things wrong. But that's not the point. The point is, are we focusing on Jesus? And if we start to observe, we're going to lead, it's going to lead us into cynicism and, and all sorts of negative things, like a cancer that can beat you up and you stop trusting and it becomes worse and worse and worse. Another thing we can, we can slip into is self-reliance. And the world around us says, you're the one that counts. You need to do it. You have it within you. I think it was Becca was, was when she was preaching, was, was the thing on the, on the library, only you can write the next page. It's a self-reliance in our culture. And what that leads to is materialism. That we, that we judge ourselves by what we have and what we are rather than by who we are in Jesus. So those are some of the dangers. There are plenty more that we, that we could go into. But these are the things that if we detach ourselves and we observe the glory of God, that these are the things that we must look into. What, what about the other half? Now, for me... Three most important words in this whole passage are you have come. You have come. We have this amazing picture of the throne room of heaven and the glory of God. It's not one day you're going there, high in the sky when you die. You can, you can, that's a hope that we have out there. You have come. You have come. When each of, when we became a Christian, those of us who are Christians, our eternal life started that moment. Eternal life isn't something we get when we die. Eternal life started now. It, we take it will take another form and it will develop when we die. That our eternal life has started. You have eternal life. You have come to the throne room of heaven. In the same way, our inheritance as the people of God is something that we can possess now. It says that in heaven, that it's a place where there is no sighing, there are no tears. There is no mourning and there is no death. And we live in a fallen world and we all experience all of those. But there is an inheritance that we can attain to, we can look for, and we can ask for a down payment of to see healing, to see our, our, our mourning turn to dancing, to, to see, to see our joy come in the morning, all of these things that we've heard. This is part of our inheritance. We may go through seasons of, of sorrow, 
but that, that Jesus will lead us out into the inheritance that we have in heaven. As we worship, we can participate, and we do participate in the worship that is happening in heaven. Sorry, Raymond and Lindsay, you're perhaps not quite at the standard of the angels in heaven, but that doesn't matter because we are, you are leading us to participate with this innumerable angels, with the church of the firstborn, all the people who have ever been part of God's family, worshipping around the throne of Jesus. You see lots of crazy pictures in, in Revelation and other places of creatures bowing down and, and, and people in the shouts praise and of glory. This is what we can participate in, and this, when we're, we're coming to worship, this is my desire that we, we step into. Sometimes that can be difficult. And after I finish, we're going to go back into worship, but there's going to be some ministry team members that if you're finding it difficult to get into a place where you can experience heaven, Worship, and we'll stand with you to help you uh, to, to make, make that change. It could be some of the things that we've, we've talked about earlier about detachment and observation and self reliance. It could simply be that we're going through one of those seasons where, where God is distant. We're not going to judge, we're not going to condemn. What we want to do is we want to help everyone into that place where we can experience the glory joy of heaven Lucy's frozen so we're going to have to just keep on in the joy of heaven and the glory of God and now I, this is where I have my insurance policy here and I, and I have my notes on my iPad great, oh ok, it's come back again ok Let's see if we, there we go. So let's read this again. We've now got a bit of understanding of what some of these crazy things that it mentions are. And, and let's, let's just focus on the glory of God. Can fans come back, please? As, I, as I'm reading this. You have come. You have come to Mount Zion the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem you have come to innumerable angels in festival gathering you have come to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven you have come to God the judge of all and the spirit of the righteous made perfect you have come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant you have come to that sprinkled blood better word of the blood of Abel. So Lord Jesus, we come to you right now. We come and in our mind's eye we picture you seated on your throne in glory and in majesty and in splendor. We picture you with innumerable angels and creatures and elders and whoever it is bowing down 